Happy Easter, guys. Um, I know it's not warm outside, but it feels really warm in here, so that's good. Timothy, I like your shirt. Me, you, and J, uh, JD are wearing pretty much the same deal. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, you are so gracious to us. You're so worthy of our praise and our affection and our adoration. You not only made everything and you've given us all, all the things that we need, Father, but in our brokenness and in our sin, you sent your Son to die on the cross. And then three days later, you told death that it would not have the final word, and you rose him from the dead. And the reason we're here every Sunday, the reason we're here today, is because that's reality. That's not a fiction. That actually happened in history. A man stopped being dead. And he lives right now. I pray that that reality and, and, and just us being together in fellowship, Father, and reading your word and um, trying to explore the depths of the riches of your kindness to us, that we would come to know you in a deeper and sweeter way, Father. We give you all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to Acts 2. We've been in uh, Colossians since September of last year, and uh, so this is a little bit of a hard right turn, but I thought it would be healthy to take a Sunday and uh, just focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, spend uh, a week um, looking at that. So uh, let's jump in. Acts 2, we're going to start with uh, verse 22. Acts 2 is going to be where we'll spend most of our time together today, Um, but let me give you some context on this. Acts 2 is ground zero of Christianity. Ground zero of Christianity. Um, It's been, at this point in time, 10 days since Jesus has ascended into heaven. Before he ascended, he promised his disciples, I'm going to send to you a comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. It will be God with you uh, in the form of the Holy Spirit. And um, little do they know before the Holy Spirit actually arrives, that their entire world is about to come undone at their seams. And true to Jesus' word, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them during Pentecost, and this leads to a sermon by Peter, one of the lead disciples. And this sermon's going to change literally everything in their lives. For Peter and the disciples and all of the believers that were around Jesus um, during his ministry, they will not have normal lives anymore. In fact, normal will, will be completely gone for them going forward. And at the center of this sermon, which is where we're going to start today, we find the culprit of that change, of that removal of any normalness for their lives going forward. And that culprit is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's start with verse 22, and we'll read through verse 28. Ready? All right. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So after this sermon... 3,000 people come to faith in Christ Jesus. In this single sermon, Christianity literally explodes into existence from a handful of people into 3,000. This is a meteoric change for these people as well. Most of these people that are hearing this in the temple where it's being preached are dedicated Jews. They traveled from across the world to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And you don't make a, a trip like that unless you are fervent and passionate about the Hebrew faith, unless you're dedicated to the Hebrew faith. And in Peter's message, they're confronted with this fact, this, this, this argument that their scriptures, which is at that time the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles, isn't the end of the story. That their scriptures are not the end of the story. That in fact, the Old Testament is just the beginning of the story that God's telling, and it points to someone. All of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures point to someone, and that someone is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So this is what I want our time to be uh, today uh, composed of. I want to take this small section within Peter's sermon, and I want to walk through it, and I want to explore what he's saying about Jesus. What is he saying that this means for us today, 2,000 years ago this was preached, what relevancy do we have in our lives today about this? Why should I care about Jesus? Why, what does he have to do with me individually as a person? That's the question I want us to ask today. And I'm going to tip my hand a little bit. The answer to that question is he has everything to do with you personally, everything to do with you individually. And in this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, number one, God's definite plan. God's definite plan. Number two, we're going to see man's absolute worst. Man's absolute worst. And number three, we are going to see our risen hope. Our risen hope. So let's start with verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The first thing we need to see here is that the Bible is very serious about impressing upon us the humanity of Jesus Christ. I think for Christians, it's, a lot of, it's easy a lot of the time to sort of slot Jesus into the deity category absentmindedly because the Bible does teach this reality about Jesus. Um, but we oftentimes do it at the expense of his humanity. It's not accurate to say that Jesus was half God and half man. That's not consistent with Scripture because that's really Greek mythology. The Bible is constantly impressing upon us the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human, and he needs to be that way. There's a reason for that. Nothing that we just read in Acts 2 has any relevance to us at all unless he was fully human. He needed to be f- fully clothed and completely clothed in humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says this, 
For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then the author continues in 5.7, Hebrews 5.7, and says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. This was a man. Jesus of Nazareth was a human being. He lived, he walked, he breathed, he hungered, he laughed, he cried, he got sick. He felt everything that we feel, everything that we feel, which is why God attested to him by the power of the Holy Spirit with these signs, with wonders and with what Peter refers to as mighty works. God did that because Jesus' humanity was so clearly seen and so clearly apparent to the people around him. God had to attest to him to prove that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just fully man. He was more than a man. And Peter says right here, you yourselves know. He's not having to argue to these people, hey, listen, he was God in the flesh. He says, you know who he was. You know he was the hope of Israel, the son of David, God in the flesh. He doesn't need to argue about this because he says, you already know this. You saw the signs or you heard of them. Uh, Jesus wasn't a secret. They had all heard about him if they had not seen him a young upstart rabbi who comes out of nowhere. He comes out of Nazareth, which is a no-name town. And this Jesus is preaching and healing people unlike anything that's ever happened before in the history of man. He's casting out unclean spirits and even raising the dead. That doesn't happen in a corner. People knew that this was true. They knew there was something different about him. And Peter continues, he says, this Jesus who you knew was somebody different than just a man, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Peter says that this Jesus is the same Jesus who did all these signs, who God attested he was delivered up. And he was delivered up according to, Peter's words are, the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So now we're seeing the first of our three points. Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan of God. Everything we're reading about here is God's definite, certain, and unchangeable plan. This word foreknowledge isn't the ability to predict the future. It is, God's not a prophet. It is God's future-creating word and understanding and comprehension of the future. He doesn't need to predict it. The future is his. Paul says in Romans, all things are from him, God, through him, sustained by God, and to him for his glory. In fact, the entirety of the Bible can be de described in, or expressed at least in Ephesians 1.11 when it says, all things, every single thing that has ever happened works according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, which is a long way of saying God is in complete control. Nothing is outside his governance or his control, which means 
this is actually a very hopeful thing, that even the darkest and most tragic events in human history will ultimately be bent by God to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for the good and joy of his people. And the crucifixion is in this category. It is God's definite plan. Yet Peter's clear about another dimension of this definite plan. He's clear that to the crowd, he says, you crucified him. You killed him. His blood is on your hands. After spending three years in ministry, this Jesus fellow who was serving the most poor, the most broken people in all of Israel is suddenly cornered in a garden. He is arrested by religious leaders. And he is tried in a Roman court, which is a sham of a trial. And then he's tortured and crucified. And he says, you did this to him. You're responsible for this. And even then, the words, you killed and crucified, what's going through their minds right now is what actually happened to Jesus. Man's absolute worst is what happened to him. He was beaten. He was bludgeoned. He was pierced. He was spit on. He was stripped down. He was scourged until, according to Isaiah 52, he no longer even resembled a human being. And then he was forced to carry his cross through Jerusalem to a place outside the city called Golgotha, the place of the skull, And there, they lay him on a tree. They anchor him to it with iron spikes in his hands and feet, and then they lift him up. And the reason they lift him up is because they're forcing him to push and pull against the nails in order to just breathe. And for six hours, he does this until he suffocates to death. This was man's absolute worst. When Peter says, you killed and crucified him, this is not a question in his mind. He, he knows, ex- they, he's describing something very explicit for them that they understand. And this is what Peter's holding them accountable for. This is his first sermon, so you've got to ask questions. Why are you going with this? Why are you leading with this? This uh, you killed and you crucified uh, deal. But what's strange about this and what most of these people, is this fact, most of these people were probably not even in Jerusalem when this happened. Most of these people never even saw Jesus. They've come to the city for Pentecost and they never saw him face to face, no less even killed him. So what does Peter mean by saying this? Why would you express it this way? Well, you know that, notice that Peter says, you did this by the hands of lawless men. He's referring to Roman soldiers. They're the ones with the hammer. They're the ones with the nail. But he doesn't stop him from saying, you killed Jesus. The blood, the, his blood is on your hands. Why does he say this? And if you were here with us last week when we were reading Isaiah 53, you know why he says this. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah is predicting how and why the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, would die. He says he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of our sin, Isaiah is saying to Israel in this passage, is what will kill this man. All of it. All of the ways in which we have not loved or treasured or honored the one who made us 
these are the reasons the cross will exist in human history. The cross was man's absolute worst. There's nothing like it we can conceive, and not just because it's a crucifixion. A crucifixion is a horrible way to die, but that's not the reason it was man's worst. The reason it was man's worst was that it was payment for every single sin, every single dishonoring of God's name we've ever committed. God's wrath, as it were, was poured into a cup, and Jesus graciously and kindly took it, lifted it to his lips, and drank it all the way down to the dregs. This wasn't just a man dying on a tree outside of Jerusalem. Many men died on trees outside of Jerusalem. This was a tsunami of God's righteousness and justice colliding with the soul of his only begotten son. It was man's absolute worst. Yet, it was still God's definite plan, which is why Peter's sermon isn't done here. He continues, and he says, basically, all things are about to be worked to the purpose of God's will. Listen to verse 24, Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised Jesus up. Please feel the weight of that. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. He was not breathing. And they placed his lifeless, very dead body into a tomb. And everyone... Every single person who knew him thought that that was the last that they would ever see of him. They thought that that was it. There will never be life in his eyes again. He's gone. He was not the hope of Israel. But the reason we're talking about him today is because that wasn't the case. He didn't stay dead. God, according to Peter, raised Jesus from the dead. And he did this by loosing the pangs of death. Peter says, because it was not possible. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. And the word pangs here is very interesting. Pangs, we don't use it often. When's the last time you used the word pang? I don't think I've ever used it. Pangs is severe agony. That's the original Greek here that the word pangs is translated into. It's odin. It means severe agony. And what's fascinating about Odin is this. The word is generally used to describe birth pains. Like that's the height of severe agony. And it's used to describe birth pains and the severe pain of giving birth, which shines light to this text in John 12, John 12, 23 through 24. Before dying, Jesus says this to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the hour that he's going to die. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. But when a grain of wheat dies, when it goes into the ground and is buried, 
it bears much fruit. The only way for Jesus Christ to undo death itself was for him to step fully into death. The only way for him to do it was to embrace the pangs of death so completely that they would be loosed. Eternal life isn't a reality for anyone unless Jesus is swallowed up by death so that he can kill death from the inside. That's the only way. So in this text, we've seen so far God's definite plan. We've seen man's absolute worst. What about our third point? Our risen hope. Well, to see that, Peter does something interesting. He takes us back into the Old Testament and he zeroes in on a Psalm of David, Psalm 16, which Devin uh, graciously read for us this morning. Peter says that although this Psalm, Psalm 16, was written a thousand years before Jesus, it was talking about Jesus. And it was talking, in fact, it was telling us why it was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave, why it was impossible for death to hold him, why he rose. Listen to how Peter recounts this psalm from Acts 2. This is what he says. He says, For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have, God, made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Thousand years before Jesus, Peter's saying, this psalm doesn't belong to David. This isn't David ultimately talking here. This is the Messiah, a thousand years later, the son of David, Jesus Christ, talking through David before he even, he even was born. In other words, though David wrote this, verse 31 in Acts 2 will tell us that ultimately these words belong to Jesus. They belong to the Messiah. And it begins with this phrase, it's Jesus talking. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. What does this mean? Why is Jesus saying this? It means that although Jesus knew all that would befall him, he knew all of the cross, the torture, all the agony, he was not shaken. He was fearless in the face of the deepest possible pain. Why? Why is this the case? Because his father was with him. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. Listen to Luke 22. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed about the cross, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. This fearlessness wasn't an absence of fear. An absence of fear is ignorance. It is not fearlessness. 
That's not what we see here. Jesus knew exactly what this cup would bring. And his prayer here shows us that at the very least. He felt the grip of fear on his heart in a way that no human being has or will ever have in the future feel to the point where he was even sweating blood. But then he locks eyes with his father in the middle of this prayer and says, never the less. Not my will, but yours be done. Which is why, even as the breakers of God's wrath begin to wash up on the shores of Christ's own soul, Psalm 16 can say, Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. This was the darkest point of human history. There is nothing darker than this. There is nothing worse than this. Yet Jesus, in the middle of it, says, My heart is glad. Despite the betrayal, despite the mockings and the beatings, despite the nails that would pierce his hand and feet, and being totally crushed under the weight of the world's sin and God's justice for it, there was gladness in the heart of Christ. Why? Because he knew, he knew unshakably what God would do in the end. He says, my flesh will dwell in hope. Cross is in front of him. My flesh will dwell in hope. How can he say that? Jesus knew that God would not abandon his soul in Hades. He knew he would not let his Holy One, the Christ, see corruption. He knew that his Father would raise him from the dead and death would not have the last word. And it was this fact, this fact alone, that fueled his courage and fueled his joy, the joy that Jesus had in this moment. Listen to Hebrews 12 too. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, is going to describe what this looks like, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw through the pain. He saw through the humiliation. And you know what he saw when he saw through it? He saw his Father, who he loved. And that kept him on the tree until every last drop of our sin was paid for. Which is why Psalm 16 can end like this. Jesus can say to his Father, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus saw the infinite goodness of his Father, the infinite love of his Father, and that's what drove him through the waters of agony into the arms of God. His Father and his love for his Father is how he endured the cross. And the rendering of this text in Acts 2 is different slightly from the rendering in Psalm 16. They say the same thing, but there's more detail in Psalm 16. Look at verse 11, Psalm 16, verse 11. This is how the original Hebrews translated into English. You make known to me the path of life. 
in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David wrote, and Jesus thought and experienced in that moment, God, in your presence, Father, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Consider what's being said here. The presence of the living God is the source of the fullest joy imaginable. Whatever you conceive of in this life being the highest and greatest joy, I hate to break, burst your bubble, it isn't the highest and greatest joy at all. It isn't even close. This fullness of joy, this ever-increasing delight in the presence of the one who made you, he says, this is the delight that Jesus saw. And then he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, which at the very least tells us that this joy, this pleasure is unending. It never ends. And that's hard to imagine because we live in a world where every single joy has an expiration date. We live in a world where all joys come to an end except for one. And that joy is the same joy that Hebrews 12 says was set before Christ. The joy that drove Jesus to endure the cross. A joy whose object is God and being utterly consumed in the immeasurable depths of the love of God. There's nothing in human experience that remotely compares to this. Nothing. Everything else in this world is finite in comparison, and though we may enjoy the joys of this world, they are a trifle compared to the loving embrace of God the Father, the one who made us. And this is what Jesus saw on the cross. But now the question is, what does this have to do with us? What does our risen hope have to do with this that we talked about earlier? Why are we talking about what Jesus felt, what Jesus experienced when he was on that tree? Well, the answer is this. The same joy that drove Christ through the cross and into the arms of his Father is the same exact joy we have access to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same exact joy. This joy is ours in Christ Jesus. To experience this joy in Christ is because we experience this joy in Christ is because he purchased for us it on the tree. This joy embodies our risen hope. It is what our risen hope is. Think of it. When he purchased this joy for us on the tree and bought it for us with our, his own blood, every sin we've committed, every last debt we owed, every way that we haven't thought of God in the way that honors him or considered him in a way that glorifies his name for having made and sustained everything that exists, all of that has been removed. If your faith is in Christ Jesus and his work, the joy is ours already. We get God, the very one who made us, the one for whom we are made. And there's nothing like it in the world. This is so vital for us to get because we struggle at this. We think with commandments and with rules and all these different things, God's trying to take something from us. 
That's not Christianity. He's not trying to take something from us. He is literally fighting for us to have the fullest possible joy and not to set our hopes on things that are going to go away. And how he fought for this most clearly is through his son, Jesus, in removing every single barrier between us and his father, displays for us why it needed to be removed in the first place. It says, for the joy set before us in Hebrews 12. The joy of being with Jesus and his Father for all eternity. And the stunning aspect of this is that it was always the plan. The Father and Son planned this from the beginning. God saw us. What you've done, how you failed, that's not a secret to him. He sees that. And in all of that, he still loves you. And he wants you and he desires you. John Flavel a Puritan minister from the 1600s, when contemplating in eternity past what this might have looked like for the Father and the Son to survey redemptive history and determine what must be done to save lost sinners and how that would display the immensity of God's love for us wrote a sermon, and in the sermon, there's an excerpt from it that's called The Father's Bargain. And this, for me, is one of the most vivid pictures of Jesus's pursuit of you ever written by man. It begins like this. The Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls who have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? To which the Son responds, O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father responds, but my son... If thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son responds, Content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though... It prove a kind of undoing to me. Though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus says to the Father, though it prove a kind of undoing to me, nevertheless, I am content to undertake it 
Not only was he content, but Psalm 16 says, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. Jesus Christ endured the greatest suffering in the world, the wrath of God, that he might pay every single debt, every single bill we owed. So while in the middle of the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end, he says, Father, it is finished. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. I've paid everything, every last might, every last drop, and I'm coming home to you, Father. I'm coming home, and I'm going to be with you forever, and I'm not going to be alone when I'm with you. I am not going to be alone. Why not? First Peter 3 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to the Father, the one for whom we were made. The greatest gift imaginable is God. There's nothing like this. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasure forevermore. Our risen hope is this. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he did that so that we would get unrivaled, unending joy in the presence of our Father. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus and your trust in him and his work for you, the gift is yours. We're going to be worshiping and taking communion in just a moment. If this is your risen hope, enjoying God forever. If that's your risen hope, if you've placed your faith in the person work of Christ Jesus as your surety, as your confidence, as your certainty, then please, when we take communion here in a few minutes, take the elements which represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ and recognize that it was his body, his blood, perfect, obedient, sinless, which he used to secure for us everlasting joy in the loving embrace of our Creator. And as you take the elements, and as we worship in our places, consider this. One day, and I promise you, I promise you this, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, I can say this with 100% certainty, you will see Him face to face. You'll see Jesus the one who died for you. Your eyes, your eyes were made for that. That's why they exist. They were made to see his glory. And one day, your faith right now that we can't see will become sight. I promise you this. And then he will embrace you and you will be overwhelmed by the love of God, who, a God who made you forever. Death will be gone. A distant memory. Why? Because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Let's pray. Father God, you are 
the source of every single joy we have in this life because you made all things. And by your word, they exist every moment. And our joys in this life are results of your creative handiwork. And yet, because we fail to acknowledge that in our hearts, and we try to write our own story out of yours, Father, and you've been dishonored and rebelled against in that, you sent your Son from before the beginning began to make a beeline for a cross outside of Jerusalem so that all of the ways in which I and my brothers and sisters have dishonored you might be paid for, satisfied, that you would love us, that you'd be a just God despite showing mercy to us that we don't deserve. And then three days later, Jesus would look death in the eyes and say, no, you will not have the last word. My Father will raise me from the dead. And I'm going to take all of those you've given me, all of my people, and bring them to you so that we can celebrate the glory of God forever. Father, I ask for your grace and your mercy in the next few minutes as we take the elements, as we celebrate Easter, as we worship you, as we fellowship afterwards, Father, that you would lay hold of our affections in our hearts and that we would delight in you, that we would see that this supreme treasure isn't something we have to wait to experience. We have a book that tells about who you are. We have opportunities to pray to you and seek you out. We have opportunities to to come together and read and think about you and talk about you, Father, that we would not wait for eternity to enjoy what we've been given now. The glory of God the Father and his Son and the joy we experience in just contemplating and loving you for who you are. Father, I pray that that's what this Easter is for, that our hearts are reworked, Father, so that we delight in you supremely. We give you all the glory and praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.